listening to TBR Radio, brought to you by the Bard Review. Now, the Andrew Carrington Hitchcock Show, with your host, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. Hello everybody. Today is another of my shows on TBR Radio, which is the Barnes Review, and you go to barnesreview.com and you will bring up this uh, bi-monthly magazine, which is excellent. And what I'm doing is I'm doing shows on the current issue. Uh, we had Patrick Derek Fox on yesterday, and um, today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson. Matthew, are you with me? I am with you. Thank you for having me on, Andy. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I've heard you before on John Friend's show, and uh, you've got great knowledge. Uh, and I've identified in this issue, you've written uh, three different pieces. You've written your main piece, which is your main article, I should say, in the issue. And uh, that is entitled Ivan the Terrible, sorry, The Truth About Ivan the Fourth, Purification to Asceticism, Noble Treason, and the Oprichnina which I may well have pronounced wrongly. And then we've got a, uh, an editorial piece on liberal democracy's failure and another very interesting short piece called The Myth of the Pogroms. But I thought if we could start off with um, this article on Ivan IV. Uh, now, my uh, knowledge of um, 16th century Russian history is literally limited to what I read in this article, which is very interesting and you really sort of make it accessible to the reader. But uh, just so that you can, to lead you into giving some background on the article, um, well, actually, first, before we jump into this, can you give us a brief bio and a background to yourself and any websites you have, any shows that you do, uh, publications, books, or whatever you have available? Sure, Andy. Um, I've been doing this for, for about 20 years. I was um, hired as the editor of the Barnes Review back in 1999. One of my first pieces, actually, for TBR was, was on Ivan the Terrible. It was one of the first big revisionist pieces I ever put out. Um, my PhD is in um, the history of political ideology from uh, the University of Nebraska. And while I was living there, I was, with, um, I was living within the, the Ukrainian uh, exile community, uh, which is actually pretty substantial out there. I got to know the language a little bit. Um, but when I was in, in college, the University of Hartford in Connecticut... That was right when the uh, USSR imploded, and I was a musician at the time. And in 1990, I, um, I gave up on that. The huge empire like this could fall apart so quickly, I'm going to sign up. Uh, this is something far more interesting than, than, than jazz, uh, than things that interested me at the time. Um, but as, right as soon as I got out of grad school, um, Willis Cardo was, was very interested in me, and uh, we worked very well together. And I was there for five years until the... Uh, the extreme financial problems of the of the place uh, forced me and several other people out, but I maintained a very positive relationship with the with the publication since then. And then just recently, I was rehired um, as a senior researcher for uh, TBR, and of course, I work with with the American Free Press as well. Um, my website is uh, Rush Journal, R U S J O U R N A L dot org, and my radio show. You know, if you search for Matthew Raphael Johnson online. A whole bunch of radio shows and, and lectures and books and articles. I don't even remember them. I have so many uh, floating around out there now. Um, it's uh, I have um, you know they're substantial. I have six books out, two published by the Barnes Review, um, and uh, one coming out on Arctos Press on Ukrainian political thought. So really, you know, um, I sometimes forget that all the all the material I have floating around out there. 
Um, but TBR has been very good to me, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of the publication. Yes, I mean, I think that that's something that we have in common, that if you Google your name or my name, there's probably very few other people out there with the same name as Matthew Raphael Johnson or Andrew Carrington Hitchcock. So, um, yeah, it is always good to do these searches and, and look for different material, especially when you've been at it for so long, um, because people don't realise what they might find, some interesting, you know, interviews or shows or what have you that you've done. Um, so, yeah, what we'll do, I'll read... Um, this is from, as I say, the current issue of uh, the Barnes Review. And if people, as I say, go to barnesreview.com and there's a, a, a button where you can subscribe. When you open that page, you have to click on an image on the left and then that takes you to another page where there's a drop-down list on the right with subscription options. If you go back to the home page, there's also an e-newsletter, which I encourage you to sign up for. And the issue that we're going from is the May-June 2016 issue. And this article of um, Dr. Johnson's is on page 66. And I'm going to read the first paragraph uh, and then hand it over to Matthew to uh, broaden the story and um, show its relevance to the world we live in today. Uh, Here we go. In the January-February issue, the Barnes Review published the second instalment of our three-part series on Ivan IV. That article discussed Ivan's early accomplishments and the building of Russia into a regional power. This instalment recounts the creation of the Oprich Mina and the actions of the traitor Andrei Kurbsky and other nobles, Ivan's royalist ideas and his battle to crush the Russian plutocracy. That's the interesting part there, his battle to crush the Russian plutocracy. Now, opening paragraph. The beginning of the 1560s was a time of great military and diplomatic victories for Russia. In the summer of 1561, the Swedish king Eric Fourteenth signed a truce with Ivan for 20 years, allowing Ivan to intensify the fight against Poland and the Crimea. Russia, sorry, Russian expeditionary, expeditionary troops, sorry, landed in Tauris from the Caspian Sea, causing panic in the courts of the Turkish Sultan and the Polish King. In the same year, the ecumenical patriarch in Constantinople approved Ivan's claim to the imperial title, which allowed the Russian Tsar to speak on equal terms with all the sovereigns of Europe. In 1563, Russia took an important strategic region, the city of Polotsk, which opened the road to Vilna, the capital of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. The Crimean Khan Devlet Duray thought it best to stop military operations against Russia and in January 1564 took the oath of allegiance to Ivan. Russia was now a global power. Now, um, just to hand over to you, Matthew, if if you want to uh, flesh anything out with the, because this is part two of uh, a three-part series. So if you want to recount any of that before you jump into this, please do so. And I'll hand over to you now. Andy, you know, I have to apologize to my readers um, how I was able to um, summarize the entire diplomatic world uh, of Europe at the time in one paragraph. Um, that's, uh, that, that was a bit too dense even for me. Um, I was trying to be as, uh, uh, trying to be as, as succinct as possible. Um, there's so much going on there. Um, yeah. We're coming into the modern world here. Uh, Ivan the Terrible was a, was an, or Ivan the Fourth. Remember something terrible um, in Russian, the word Grozny, uh, capital of uh, Chechnya is Grozny too. It just means extraordinary. It's uh, another, it's beyond the great. It's someone who is um, so strong 
and awe-inspiring that uh, even his enemies have to have to respect him. That's what the word means. Yeah. Um, even in the Anglican Church, um, we, we, you could read in the in the um, consecration of a church, the liturgy. It says how terrible this place is, referring to the church itself. It was a, it's not a negative thing at all. It's a positive thing. Um, uh, you mentioned the um, the nature of the oligarchy, and when I first started writing on I was a terrible. I was still a grad school at the time. I uh, I recognized something in Russia, and I recognized it everywhere else I studied. And I don't want to say it's a universal constant, but there seems to be in European politics one of two choices: either you support the oligarchy, whether they're called you know politicians or bankers or, or, or industrialists, whatever they are, or monarchy. Uh, it's one or the other. Um, monarchy has a tendency to focus on the common good, um, the centralization, um, fairness, um, and uh, a land empire, uh, Germany or, or Russia. On the other hand, the oligarchy has a tendency to be involved in, in commerce, uh, decentralization like you had in Poland at the time, uh, egocentrism, and rejection of anything that's common. Um, in, in Europe at the time, the two mirror images was Poland, were Poland and, and Russia. Poland did not have a functioning central government, really never did. Poland was a, was a, um, a group of islands, essentially, of, of, of noble power, with a king that was very, very weak. And Ivan the Terrible's entire vision was to reverse that. Poland fell apart because of that. Uh, and Russia at the time had noble families so powerful that they had their own armies, they had their own intelligence, they had their own navies if they were close uh, to water. They had their own um, a trade policy. If Russia was going to be a unified power and not go the way that Poland will soon go, uh, eventually falling to pieces in, in, in the 18th century, she needed a strong monarch, and these noble families and the private armies and their private alliances needed to be uh, eliminated. And the Oprachina was uh, his elite corps that he created to uh, make war on us. Ivan the Terrible knew that one reality, that in Europe you either have an oligarchy in one form or another, or you have a monarchy in one form or another, and there is no um, third way. And in, in Russia's case, that was so overwhelming, it was so powerful, so vivid, that uh, it really became the central element of my research in, in Russian history from there on in. Um, my, one of my first articles was on Ivan the Terrible. Um, the, the propaganda coming specifically out of the British Empire uh, against Russia, because then and now, um, Britain remained the primary enemy of, of of the Russian Empire. They were such; they were so different from each other. One was, you know, uh, a commercial and maritime. The other was agrarian and um, land-based. You see, that's Alexander Dugin's big uh, distinction in world politics too. That they were going to fight each other no matter what, and they fought each other even when they were on the same side. World War allegedly on the same side of World War One. And it never ended, even today. Uh, one of the central sources of anti-Russian propaganda comes from London, as well as from um, uh, New York City and, and Washington, D.C. These are two polar opposites in world politics and in world history, and no one, more than Ivan the Terrible, um, uh, manifests what the Russian idea really was. And so from there, I just that, that's really what brought me into Russia studies full-time. Excellent. And I mean... You, you refer to it's either an oligarchy or a monarchy, and the fact is, pretty much running the world today, we have an oligarchy. 
uh, even where you have a monarch in the United Kingdom, for example, Queen Elizabeth II, it's just a token role. There's no power exercised by her whatsoever. It's all through so-called government and this democracy, which is controlled by the same elite on both sides. Yeah, I mean, remember, I'm using those terms as, as very general uh, ideal types. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, oligarchy can refer to what we had, you know, a, a rule of bankers, rule of industrialists, rule, rule of noble families. Yeah. It could be any kind of, you know, a powerful elite um, that creates the constitution so that they can divide the spoils easier among themselves. Um, a monarchy could be anything from like what, what Vladimir Putin is now or Francisco Franco, someone like that, um, a very powerful leader who, and all these guys were just absolutely overwhelmed, no matter where they were, the fact that powerful elites hated them. They hated the fact that, that a strong central government was going to force them to serve the common good, force them to pay taxes, force them to put their, their wealth into something other than uh, expanding their own ego. And this is the constant, it seems, wherever I go, it seems to be the constant. Um, and uh, Putin in Russia, I guess, is as close to a real monarchy as you have uh, in the world right now, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's defining himself almost exactly the way Ivan did. Russia either is going to be a, a functional, uh, just society, which going to be like the U.S. It's going to be this, this um, uh, uh, so not even a country, just this, this, this a collection of, of egos ruled by money. And it's going to be one or the other. And, and Russia almost disappeared in the um, 1990s yeah. because it was so quickly heading down the road to oligarchy. And it's funny, I actually read a book called The Oligarchs about the six different um, so-called oligarchs like Boris Brzezewski, uh, Borisevsky, sorry, um, and the different, and they were all, I think, five out of the six were Jewish. Um, and these were the people that were basically, you know, taking control of all of Russia's wealth. And uh, you had that Boris Yeltsin in charge, who was an alcoholic. Uh, and, and essentially, it wasn't until Putin came in, and he started going after these people. I mean, what's your view on... You know, the thing is with Putin, I really want to think that this guy's a real you know, champion for the white race. And a lot of a lot of it says to me that he is, but then you get sent these photos of him with these rabbis and things like that. Now, I understand that people have to take an approach. Uh, and maybe if he kicked all these people out of his country, then it would potentially subject him to a nuclear attack or what have you, because we know the control these people have. So... Is he paying lip service to these people and he's a genuinely good leader? Or and is he the model we should be looking to follow? Or do you have any questions regarding Vladimir Putin? Well, as you know, in, in 2000, uh, when he was first appointed by, by uh, an ailing Boris Yeltsin to take over, um, I was the first to say that this man is going to change the world. Um, I thought maybe Alexander Lebed, the general at the time, was going to do it. Uh, he was assassinated a short time later. But I said to myself, but even in the 90s, I said Russia is going to be the center of the fight against the New World Order. It needs a leader to unify the population. Um, I was already aware of Putin in the 90s uh, working for the mayor of uh, Moscow, uh, Shobchak's uh, office, and that he, um, he was being watched by a lot of people. You know, initially, he was financed by this oligarchy uh, when he first ran for office and then turned on them. So, you know, I'll take your money, uh, and then now you're going to get kicked out. He's, he's got to be extremely careful. The oligarchs took most of Russian wealth and shipped it abroad in liquid form. He's trying to get that back. Any Russian leader has to try to get that back. 
He can't just start massacring these people. Although, in some people's minds, even if you were to just machine gun them, it still wouldn't be enough. Uh, I think that people are so cynical right now that even when a solid leader appears, they don't know what to do with them. They're so they're so alien to them that any decent leader would would would, would arise um, that uh, they don't they don't even know how to recognize it. It must be must be fake. It must be you know to be seen cynically. Um, but I have I've been writing on him since two thousand. Um, my original website from years ago, which is you can find on the Wayback Machine um, online, uh, you'll see I've been talking about him for you know sixteen years now. Uh, and when I first started talking about him in this respect, I was all alone, and I was attacked by everyone and anyone. Um, and now some of these same people have jumped on the bandwagon. Forget who started that bandwagon, um, but it really was my position with the Barnes Review that got it started. Michael Collins Piper was was um, skeptical. Willis Carter was skeptical. I converted them both, and then they began to talk about this full time, uh, really all the time, as you know the the Jewish elite was began attacking him uh, on a daily basis in the press, uh, threatening him like no Soviet leader was ever attacked and threatened, and they really spread the they spread the word that something new was going on, and every day he's doing something more to to irritate the the oligarchy. And I don't know what more this guy's got to do to satisfy his, his opponents out there. And all I could say is that they just don't know how to recognize a solid leader anymore. He's a politician. He's not perfect. He can't just, you know, have the rabbis come in and shoot them. You know, I guess these people would like him to do. Um, he's a politician. He's working with everyone he can. Uh, not every one of these people is evil. And uh, some of them are, are quite interested in, in, uh, in rebuilding Russia. And, uh, you know, um, he's functioning like any politician would. He's one of the most popular leaders in Russian history. He's one of the most popular leaders in the world. And, um, you know, American politicians are, are envy him. And, you know, I have a book out on Putin from the Barnes Review Press, from uh, TBR, uh, my last published book, actually. And the thesis really is that Western leaders, Western elites, are projecting all of their own failures onto him. And when you, when you realize, when, when you read these people, the attacks on him from, like, Senator John McCain, people like that, they're talking about the U.S. They're talking about themselves. They're, they're talking about their own failures and the fact that the U.S. is in such a state of decay and, and close to collapse. And Russia is just beginning its, its, its climb to you know, rebuilding itself. Um, I think there's a lot to be, to be said about that, that thesis. They're attacking Putin. They're, they're projecting their own failures and their own insecurities about the United States and the Western world uh, onto him. And it's really a psychological phenomenon. And um, the more I quote these people, the more I read these people, the more I think that that's absolutely the case. As far as people on our side that, that don't um, that aren't satisfied by him yet, if you're not satisfied by now, then nothing this man can do will satisfy him. And I have been writing about this since he first took over, and uh, there's nothing more this man can do. Everything that, that people on our side want to see happen, he's done. He doesn't think in racial terms. I don't think it's not going to happen. He's... Um, he you know, considers himself the leader of the third world. Uh, when he when he views himself, when he talks about the West, he's not referring to Western civilization. He's referring to the Western oligarchy. He's talking about the, the Enlightenment. You know, he's not talking about uh, Western civilization as such. And so he's very careful when when he uses words like the West in the Russian case. He's not talking about you know what we mean. He's not talking about Plato and Aristotle. He's talking about he's talking about the oligarchy. Yes, and I found uh, a book, your book, uh, Russian Populist, uh, on the Barnes Review. If people go to the navigation bar and on the uh, 
very right end of it, you'll see a little magnifying glass symbol hover over that. And then again, a drop down. If you type in Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson, you'll get back issues that uh, uh, Dr. Johnson's work appears in. And also you could uh, find some of the book, this book there as well, amongst other things. So, yeah, the uh, I'm really encouraged by your words there, because the, the, the point is, is that... And I had this discussion with Patrick Derek Fox as well, is that people, they hear about something, sorry, someone, they hear something positive and straight away they want to find, if they can find one negative image or one negative statement, then they'll literally throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and as you say, with him being a politician and what have you. Now, I believe he's in his 60s now. My, my worry would be if something were to happen to him, who would follow him? Because you say he's got like a monarchy type of ideal, but is there some sort of succession plan or is someone going to come in like a, that guy we've got now running the Ukraine who's a basically, a, from what I can understand, a, a criminal anyway? Uh, what's to protect Russia should something happen to uh, Vladimir Putin? What, in your understanding, is the succession plan there? That's something that's been uh, probably one of the one of the weak links um, in this situation. Um, the people like the defense minister, there's there's politicians in the Rodina party and the Duma that, that might be able to do it, that as of right now have no substantial following. Uh, Putin is, is fairly young. The population wants him to stay on um, for another term, even if he has to violate the Constitution to do it. Uh, they don't really care about that. You know, they care about results. He's... Um, they're willing to stick with him no matter what. His his popularity rating has I don't think ever dipped below seventy percent. Uh, in you know since um, since he brought Russia out of the depression in, in, in you know by, by two thousand and five, uh, and after the Crimean situation. Now my book was published before the situation in Eastern Ukraine and, and Crimea, uh, and so and yet this stuff was still intimated by it. He absorbed the Crimea. His popularity rating went above eighty percent, but no one in the world was even close to it. Um, off the top of my head, I don't have any obvious successor to him. Um, you're right to refer to Poroshenko and, and that, that group as criminals. Uh, they are, they simply, you know, they are the, the ultimate expression of oligarchy. Ukraine is not an independent country. Um, they have to report to the U.S. Embassy every week. They've made that very clear. The U.S. Uh, and the creditor, the major banks, uh, control Ukrainian policy. Uh, they own huge chunks of Ukrainian territory and have police powers over it. Um, I have several articles out. Chevron and Shell have bought uh, much of the country up, and they actually own it as private property. And they have police power and even diplomatic power over it. Now, they've sold their interest in that uh, when the war started in eastern Ukraine, but the principle is still there. It is quite possible for oligarchs to move in and simply buy the country and run it as a fief. Um, that was the case in Ivan the Terrible's time as well. You know, um, and, and I should note, in places like Poland at the time uh, were so extremely oligarchic that you can't refer to Poland as a country. It, it, there was no unified Polish legal tradition at the time. It was a group of powerful noble families that occasionally would cooperate to destroy an enemy or to uh, maintain their power. There is no single unified tradition in that country at all. And even the oligarchs, the, the elites in, in Poland, didn't call themselves Polish. They were Sarmatians. They were, they were, uh, they were this um, Aryan uh, nomadic 
people uh, from the ancient world, and they wanted to view themselves as superior to the peasantry that they held in subjection as serfs, far harsher than anything in Russia or in Western Europe that ever developed. Uh, it, it's the same concept. You know, I end up talking about Putin. I end up talking about Ivan. It, it's, a, it's a seamless uh, uh, back and forth there because the dynamics is the same. Um, even even in religion, uh, the, the oligarchs in, in Russia were, able, were quite willing to throw orthodoxy uh, overboard for the sake of supporting the religion of the Poles, Roman Catholicism, one kind or another, later on Protestants, uh, for the sake of maintaining their power. There's nothing that they wouldn't do. There's no principle that they wouldn't abandon for the sake of holding on to their power. And it's the same thing in, uh, in Russia. These oligarchs in the 1990s controlled the country. They ran it as sections of it as a fief. Um, taxes seemed to be optional. There was no functional central government. There was no functional military chain of command in the 1990s. The country had disintegrated. Putin did the same thing that Ivan did. He needed to use force. I mean, Ivan was, was far harsher in that respect, but he had no choice in the matter to create a unified country out of absolute chaos. And that's why Ivan is called the terrible today. Um, and Putin is... Um, really a monarch and all, but he doesn't have the power. You know, he's, he's not a dictator. Um, there is an independent judiciary. There's absolutely an independent press, most of which is negative uh, towards Putin. But um, it's the exact same phenomenon. We, you know, we're talking about uh, Putin today, uh, the Federal Reserve in America, um, the, the oligarchs in the 90s, Ivan the Terrible, uh, Poland. It's the same phenomenon. It's the same battle back and forth. And it's, it's so easy to move from one to another uh, it sounds chaotic, but it's absolutely coherent. It's the same phenomenon. Yes, and I actually, um, I've been to Kiev, and so when I saw the devastation after this, uh, you know, Jewish-led uprising uh, with Poroshenko in power and what have you, it really was quite horrible to to see that beautiful uh, city, all, all the damage done to it, the burning and the looting and and what have you. And I've also been to St. Petersburg a couple of times, and it, when you go to these, these countries, they are predominantly white nations. And, um, you know, the people seem very genuine, very friendly, very helpful, I found. Um, and I, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent, but, but of what a lot of the listeners will be familiar with re- relating to Ukraine and Russia is, um, you know, obviously... Putin going in to the the Crimea, which was simply to protect uh, the Russians there that were being persecuted. They were even trying to pass a law that they weren't going to be allowed to speak Russian, I believe. Um, and the other issue I wanted to raise, of course, that Malaysian Airlines flight being shot down. I don't know if any of your researchers has covered that, because from my point of view, I, I don't have any doubt that the Ukrainians did it uh, and then tried to blame it on Russia and the reason that I say that is that if they had ev- uh, evidence to the contrary then they'd be pushing and hammering Putin over this because they've been trying to get rid of him for years and the fact is is that the mainstream have gone very quiet about this very soon after the event when I think that they were trying to blame Russia but Russia came out with some technical data that pretty much disproved it and then the mainstream press went quiet about that. Do you have any Im- um, information on that uh, Matthew? I do have something floating around out there. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but, yeah, it, it was very obvious by the, the study of the wreckage, um, by the, the communication pilot um, uh, to, to the authorities below that this was not 
you know, this was not a Russian attack. There were no Russian jets in the area at the time. Uh, you're exactly right to say that it was it was shot down by a um, um, either Ukrainian fighter or from the ground, and and blamed on Russia. There was no uh, there, there were no Russian um, fighters in the area, and it was done right over the breakaway Republic of Donetsk. Uh, so it was very clearly trying to trying to blame that movement um, uh, for that. It, it, it you know the same thing with trying to say that Assad in Syria you know, used poison gas in, in Damascus. You know, or, or that, or that Putin tried to poison um, uh, Levitenko, the the the, the, um, the journalist, uh, uh, with with radiation. Yeah. And I say to these people, how, how how stupid are these people? You know, Assad was winning at the time. Why is he going to use poison gas in his own capital? And it it um, knowing full well the West would go crazy over this and hammer him over this, that his own people would be gassed by this, and the fact that the press covered up the fact that that. That canister that they used was a very crude, non-military, uh, almost homemade. All of these things. Why would I wrote I wrote something on the on the uh, the, the use of uh, polonium to destroy Putin's uh, opponent? I said first of all, um, Putin is infinitely more popular than any of these people, or all these people put together. He doesn't care if they live or die. And number two, um, he's going to have him killed with radiation, and he knows full well. That he would be on the, uh, exactly what happened, a slow, painful death on world television every single day, with Putin's name being mentioned every single day. It would be suicidal for him to, to do this. Nothing makes any sense about these stories. They're stupid. None of these people are a threat to them. Um, you know, and, and all of these issues with the, uh, the, the jet, everything. They're constantly they're trying to do whatever they can. They're hurting people and blaming um, blaming Putin or blaming Assad or blaming someone like that. And it doesn't make any sense. It's not in their interest uh, to do any of these things. Something like like um, shooting down the path. What you know? You're talking about a country a leadership that's very popular, um, a popular movement in eastern Ukraine, an extremely unpopular uh, government in Kiev, which really is you know that is an oligarchy subject to the U.S. banking elite, legally speaking, not just uh, you know in a manner of speaking. Legally speaking, they're subject to the to their creditors. Um, and you know, this popular government is going to give a boost to these very unpopular oligarchs by doing something irrational, like killing a bunch of innocent people. It doesn't make any sense from their point of view. Uh, in the Crimean case, uh, Putin, um, there was a referendum with about um, 90% turnout, and it was as everyone expected at the time, between with a margin of error between 95 and 97% wanting to go back to, to Russia. No one in the world wants to be a part of the Ukrainian breakdown. It has no functional economy. It has no functional um, currency. The hryvnia is worthless. It is being supported only by the occasional uh, grant, not even a loan anymore, a grant by the IMF. Who would want to stay in Ukraine? There is no hope. There are no jobs. Everything is black market. There, what little industry exists was um, was taken by the by the uh, really the National Socialist Revolutionaries in Eastern Ukraine in the creation of the Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, uh, society, the so-called you know Federated Republic of the Donbass, which is a new country in eastern Ukraine, but but killing innocent people um, makes no sense for a government or governments that are very popular, knowing full well that it would give a boost to their enemies. It just doesn't make sense. It's over and over again they're trying to blame these guys for these atrocities that is not in their interest to commit. 
Yes, and I remember the mainstream media were trying to say that, oh, that the question that they asked for this referendum in Crimea, you know, it, it was worded incorrectly and, and the people didn't really want that and they were forced to vote that way. I mean, they just come out with such nonsense all the time. And it's all these so-called Western governments that lie to their people that the, this Jewish elite is in control of. Uh, and I, I am encouraged that people seem to be waking up. They're waking up far too slowly for my liking, but at least um, you know, what you've been talking about, and um, I remember coming into this in oh, over 10 years ago, and there were still people talking about, oh, it's, it's uh, the Vatican that runs the world, and it's all these different sort of... No, it isn't. It's this Jewish power, and you just follow the money and you can find it. And now... Uh, even these more mainstream people are having to to admit this Jewish involvement because otherwise they won't get anybody listening to them. And people talk about the synagogue of Satan as this group now, or the Jewish elite, much more than they even talk about the New World Order or the Illuminati because they've been exposed. And this is why we're having all this hate crimes legislation, etc., that they're trying to rush through because uh, the independent media is growing and people are getting disillusioned with the mainstream lies. So I think on that basis, the the work that you've done is very encouraging to turn uh, people to an actual model that you can follow. And, and having, I mean, I went to Kiev because I met a, a a girl in this country who was a, a doctor, I, um, and she was from there, and she'd lived over here for about 10 years, and, uh, and we, we dated for a while, and uh, I went over there to meet her parents, and we stayed right in the centre and it was a lovely town um but what's your views on on the i mean the russian model i mean having been there myself the only problem is of course because it's still got uh the the architect you've got apartment block after apartment block after apartment block and obviously you go into the subway in kiev and uh the subway in st petersburg you've got the same you know designs on the walls of all the different uh images of the soviet era and images of production etc very very similar um it would be nice for them to be able to shake off that uh, that communist style of living, which is everyone stacked on top of each other at some point. But firstly, they need to you know, get control of their own country from these uh, elites that have, uh, have basically embedded themselves so deeply into it. Uh, you know, I, I knew that eventually uh, the, the population of the world, and this is, this is the case in polls, uh, wherever you go, um, we'll start thinking that, that there will be a model, that there will be a form of leadership that could bring much of the world out of their subjection to, to the banking elite. Um, uh, Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus on a, on a small scale has been a model that I've been describing for a long time. I have articles all over the place, the Occidental Observer, and I got, I got things all over the place that his strong presidential, almost a, a royalist model, rescued that small country from the ravages of the 1990s. You know, he was able to stop privatization. The the oligarch, uh, oligarch the, essentially the oligarchy liquidated the labor, the people of the last you know 200 years, and brought it into their own bank accounts, leaving the country uh, an empty shell. Uh, Ukraine is um, Ukraine. Any any Russian who's thinking at all sees Ukraine now as essentially a fourth world country. They're at the same economic level as Ghana and Mali. Um, Government is not really a government. I mean, we can't be using these terms anymore. It is totally privatized. It is now totally under the, the rule of Citibank. 
and um, and Goldman Sachs, who you know essentially they owe all their money to. The situation in Ukraine, uh, the war in Eastern Ukraine, which is still going on, you have a a, um, a nationalist and, and to some extent a socialist movement, and in that part of the country that's defeated the Ukrainian army, which is largely deserted by now, and then they began hiring with American taxpayer money um, mercenaries from Poland and, and the Baltics, and they defeated them as well. Um, uh, Putin, Lukashenko remain immensely popular, and then the Trump phenomenon in America, and Trump is the only one who doesn't want war with with the Russian Federation. Of all the candidates um, that have been right, even you know when the, when the primary season was still going on, he was the only candidate that essentially didn't want to nuke Russia. Didn't have didn't have uh, John McCain's view of the matter. For the first time in my life, I'm optimistic about what's going on. Uh, I, I was I was um, in 1992. I was still in college. I was on the Buchanan campaign uh, in New Hampshire, and I watched the media destroy him, even though he was very popular. But they couldn't do the same thing to Donald Trump, who sang the same thing as Buchanan did in '92. This is, you know, it, it, it's it's unbelievable um, um, verification of everything that we believe, everything that we that we're doing. And in the world, um, you have Ukraine and increasingly the U.S. as a negative model, Russia, Belarus, even Kazakhstan, even China as the other side slowly but surely creating these uh, very wealthy first world countries. Um, Syria, Libya, Iraq, these were all on the verge of first world status when these wars broke out. Saddam Hussein was right on the cusp of first world status when, um, and, and by 1990-91, when the invasion, uh, they took Kuwait and then the U.S. Uh, invaded the area. Russia is a threat to the world for this reason. Russia is a threat to, to the oligarchs because he's showing that you know, this, this buccaneer capitalism is not the only way to development. It's not a way to development at all. It's, it's, a, um, it's, it's a sick uh, a perversion. It's what oligarchy eventually does. And in, in, in Ukraine, it's, it's open that, that you know, half the cabinet aren't Ukrainian. There is no independent um, uh, Ukraine whatsoever. They, every, every penny has to be accounted for to, by the Western creditors. Um, you know, the situation in, in Yugoslavia, Kosovo, is, it becomes independent, except they didn't tell you that their flag is the EU flag and that they are actually a, a, under uh, the EU as a protectorate. So you know, this, is, this is a new world order showing itself, and it just, you know, the mask is off. The, the models are open and clear, and Ukraine is, is absolutely heartbreaking. Ukraine has more people with advanced degrees uh, per capita than any other country in the world. It is the most educated country in the world. It, it, it was the powerhouse industrially and electronically and chemically of the, the Soviet Empire. And, um, and now it's at the level of, of, of West Africa. And um, it's absolutely heartbreaking to see how this developed. And the, the, all, the, all, the, all the way through this potential, uh, natural resources, everything completely wasted. Um, the labor, the, the industrial capacity completely gone, liquidated. Um, and, and so the two models, the two, the two approaches to the world are clear. What I said in the beginning, oligarchy versus monarchy, there is no, there is, generally speaking, those two is general terms, nothing could be more blatant than the two systems in Ukraine and Russia or the U.S. and Russia, um, uh, mirror images of each other, uh, the one increasingly just, the one increasingly absurdly unjust. Yes, and... Um your other two pieces in the they're, they're kind of they're all linked to to this um to russia really um and i'm going to take us to uh 
the myth of the pogroms, how the press covered up the massacre of Christians. I really like this because as soon as you hear pogroms in Russia, you're automatically conditioned to think, oh, that was when they killed the Jews. But I'm going to jump into the uh, second paragraphs. Sorry, second paragraph. And you write, rather than being victims of pogroms, Russia's Jews were some of the best armed human beings on the planet. They demanded total freedom from all taxation and military service and, in exchange, would not only finance the Red Revolt domestically, but act as its primary infantry in the cities of Western Russia, such as Kiev, Mogilev or Odessa. According to Oleg Platonov in his book The True and the False About the Pogroms, which is Yorza Publishing 2005, in the 1905 pogrom, of all bodies examined after the violence, just 12% were Jewish. In Staradub, uh, 150 armed Jews fired on an Orthodox Christian procession. So, uh, just over to you on these pogroms, um, Matthew. Well, um, this is going to be something I'm going to be plagiarized uh, for probably for the rest of my life. This is this is a new you know Holocaust issue. Yeah. Um, I Oleg Platonov uh, doesn't speak English and doesn't write in English. Um, I've been reading him for a long time in in Russian, and um, you know I can read the language very well. I can't speak it at all. They're two totally different things for me. Um, I. I, I was really blown away by reading his book, The Myth and the Fact of, 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 the, of the Pogroms in the late 19th century and 20th century. Um, none, none of the stories are true. Uh, this is going to be, you know, I'm one of the most plagiarized people on the web right now. Um, stuff that I've been saying for, for 20 years uh, about Russia is now mainstream. And people are just, you know, just cutting and pasting things of mine all over the place, claiming it to be theirs. Yeah. Uh, and it really, it drives me crazy, to be honest with you, but... Uh, at the very least, I should be happy because these things are now uh, being promoted uh, in the mainstream, even. Every time I study one of these pogroms, whether it be you know, Odessa, uh, which was one of the, the Jewish capitals of, of Eastern Europe at the time, I, I found a few things. Number one, the Jewish community was heavily armed. There was no gun control in, in Russia. The state in, in the Russian Empire just wasn't powerful enough. Um, you know, everything was local, and the Jewish community were they were completely free they they were self-governing the kahal was their only governing uh, entity there were no restrictions on their property ownership contrary to myth but one of the reasons that the black hundreds the union of the russian people began to develop at their strongest units were in uh the western part of the country was that these these jewish nationalist um, societies were tremendously well armed even with heavy weapons at the time uh there was no massacre of jews at any time um, there were there were clashes between right and left, extreme right, extreme left. We would say, uh, you know, around 1900, and they, they, these were shootouts. There were there were plenty of time where you know even the mayor the mayor of Odessa was was supporting the the, the red movement. Uh, the Jews were seen universally as the foot soldiers, as you read there, of of the the leftist revolution. They mixed Jewish nationalism on the one hand with some kind of a socialist uh, ideology on the other hand. Trotsky being the ultimate example of that later on. Any time that these um, the battlefields of these so-called pogroms were investigated, you find you certainly find dead Jews. You find more uh, dead Orthodox people, and you, know, you have every kind of provocation 
we have leaflets from Jewish nationalists in, in, in places like Mogilev or, or, or Minsk, places like that, uh, calling on the destruction of, of, of Russian people, burning of churches kind of thing. They're, they're building um, uh, all kinds of, of weapons of terrorism. Um, you know, and it, it's everywhere. And, and I find that, that these were shootouts between Jewish nationalists and police force. Police force usually totally outgunned and outnumbered. The Union of the Russian People, the Black Hundreds, came into existence to be the bodyguard of the of the Russian Orthodox people in these areas. And the farther you get in the Russian Empire, the more Jewish you get. I have several papers on that whole that whole dynamic. Uh, but these were powerful, wealthy people with powerful, wealthy patrons in St. Petersburg. So I noticed, number one, that, you know, these are not massacres, these are not pogroms, these are shootouts. Number two, these are wars, these are kind of uh, almost uh, dress rehearsals for the Civil War. Um, number three, these things have a tendency to be um, a, a, a procession, let's say an Orthodox procession at Easter, or uh, a nativity, nativity or Christmas or something like that, that are attacked by uh, Jewish leftists because they associated the Orthodox Church with, with monarchy in one form or another. And so these religious fights had a political overtones and vice versa. So this is what I'm noticing everywhere I go. I'm in the process now of writing a paper, a substantial paper, showing that these, these pogroms were mostly myth. And that, if anything, the Jewish elite, the very well-armed Jewish population of these Western Russian cities, uh, is usually to blame for the, for the violence. Yes, and... Um that, that really was a fascinating piece to read because, as I say, I, I'd, I'd, I should have looked into it more myself. Uh, I mean, I know how much uh, these people seem to lie and distort history, but I just assumed that at that point uh, the Russians were getting the Jews out of their society in the same way as has happened in Europe many, many times over the last thousand years because of their nefarious practices. But we see even here that uh, they're lying about that. And I, on that note of... Um, you know, expulsions of Jews. I believe the author's Bernard Lazar. I quote a, a, a piece of his in, in the Synagogue of Satan where he basically says, and he's a Jewish author himself, he said, if um, these expulsions, you know, you have to look at them, I'm paraphrasing, what he basically says is the only common denominator in these Jews being kicked out of country after country. All these di cultures are different. You've got different languages spoken, but the only common denominator is the Jews themselves. And so clearly they must be doing something to get them kicked out of the countries because they're the only common denominator. And, and when you read something like that by one of their own authors, it's very revealing. Um, and, uh, have you got any comments on that before I move on to liberal democracy's failure, uh, Matthew? Yeah, this is, I think this is going to be a big deal because as Putin becomes more and more powerful, uh, issues of the pogroms and Russian nationalism and, and orthodoxy and, and you know, there are Russian saints that were supportive of the, of the Black Hundreds. You know, these were self-defense units um, and, and that's of immense importance. When I study any expulsion of the Jewish population from, I mean, I'm not saying that there was, that there was never any attempt to get rid of them in, in late 19th century or 20th century Russia at all. It simply couldn't be done. Uh, there was a strong Zionist interest uh, in around 1900, the Black Hundreds, that the idea, as you know, Hitler's own transfer agreement, uh, the idea that um, the best thing to do is, is, is to create a state for Jews in, in the Middle East. And so there wouldn't be this, this alien uh, force in, in our societies anymore. But at the time, you know, Zionism was 5%. 
of the Jewish population. Um, but the myth of the pogroms really helped, just like Hitler himself, really helped develop that movement, which was almost you know, non-existent in 1900 and became dominant among Jews um, 100 years later. Uh, I'm noticing that wherever we study the any expulsion, in Western Europe especially, you have um, the, the, the charges are all pretty much the same. Uh, number one, debt, taking over property, taking over churches uh, by fraudulent means by, by Jewish bankers uh, or loan sharks at the local level. Uh, number two, because they're so cohesive and their network is so large internationally, they're always able to offer lower rates than everybody else. So they ended up being uh, strongly centralized banking establishments, even at, the, even at the local level. And number three, I do notice um, um, things like pornography and prostitution, even in the Middle Ages. Mm. They were involved in all of this, um, you know, using people's passions, whether it be you know, the lust or greed or envy, and using those passions against the European population in one way or another. Um, I have an article uh, maybe last year in the Barnes Review when the Russian emperor... Uh, set up a, a um, uh, Gabriel Dzhavin created the the committee to study the Jewish problem in in, in Western Russia, and what they found you know, they were sending Philo Semites out to, to Western Russia to, to figure out what's going on, why the Jews are hated. This has already been been covered, and they're seeing this wherever they go. Fraudulent practices uh, to take property away, um, debt requisitions, the monopoly of vodka sales. You know, um, you know, using alcohol to get peasants to sign things over. Just, you know, the worst possible um, methods. And, of course, uh, Solzhenitsyn's book, uh, 200 Years Together, is also a strong area of of, um, uh, of information. on saying the same things about the town office. And Solzhenitsyn has the same view of the pogroms as, um, as the tunnel. So I see debt, I see fraud, and, um, you know, the, the, the crimes against morality, like, like prostitution and pornography. And then once in a while, you come across the, the ritual murder, uh, which is something I haven't looked into as much as I probably should, but this is this shows up everywhere. And wherever you go, this Jewish ritual murder is is, is constant. But I, I haven't studied that enough for me to make much of a comment about it. Well, I mean, uh, on that note, uh, I actually, the, the book I'd recommend there is uh, My Relevant Defense, Jewish Ritual Murder by Arnold Leese. And I actually put a post on my site because uh, he's only about 30 Obviously, he, he died, I think, in 57 or 58, but he wrote some great, great material. And I was fortunate enough to actually go into the house where he wrote it because uh, that was over in Guildford, which isn't very far from where I live, and I went over there and I actually took some photos and a very kind lady, uh, I had a copy of this book, I think she thought was going to try and sell something, but he used to put his address at the bottom of the uh, opening page of his book, um, White House, Pewley Hill, Guildford, and I found it. She let me in, and I was able to see images of the house where he was arrested and all sorts of stuff. So it's a very interesting experience. And, um, yeah, your points there on, on these Jewish fingerprints. Uh, Magna Carta, 1215. We recently had the 800-year anniversary. Now, if people read that, it's not a long document. I've actually got it in its entirety. Uh, no, I haven't got the whole lot, sorry, in the synagogue state. But I quote the two uh, passages. There's no race name. They don't refer to the English in there or the Irish or the Italians. The only time they refer to a race is on a couple of occasions when they refer to Jews. And it's what Jews are allowed to do and what Jews aren't. And when they had the 800th anniversary uh, recently, um, they omitted those paragraphs. 
okay? Uh, they admitted those two bits. I mean, this is how evil these people are and how controlling they are in the media and what have you. And the other thing, so we've really got to get on to your... Um, you've got some great points in Liberal Democracy's Failure, the editorial piece. Um, and we've got only a few minutes left, about six, five, six minutes. But very quickly, uh, what you were saying about... Uh, these revolutionary activities. I went to the Church of the Spilt Blood in St. Petersburg. Now, this is where uh, Emperor Alexander II was fatally wounded by one of these Jewish terrorists. And what they did was, it was in the exact place where he was wounded, they built this church to honour him because he was so loved by the people. Yeah, it's one of the most beautiful churches in the world. Yeah. And it, um, the Church of the Spilt Blood, it's, it's not normally used, it's used just a few times a year. And, you know, when, when, but by, by, say, 1905, um, Jewish revolutionaries were, you know, they had killed about 20,000 people uh, between, between um, uh, 18, between the freeing, freeing and the serfs in 1860, um, 1861 to, to 1900. They, they killed thousands and thousands of people, uh, policemen, politicians. Um, they, they were already a, a hugely successful terrorist group. And I had an article in TBR uh, by um, uh, Le- uh, Lev Tegmirov, who was a member of one of these groups, the only non- non-Jew in, in, um, in the most powerful one, um, uh, Popular Will, was called, and uh, the group that killed Alexander II. And he makes it very clear. He says that, that their ideology really is, in secret, uh, Jewish nationalism, but in public they somehow you know, they want to give land to the peasants, even though peasantry, the peasantry controlled uh, 95% of the land in the Russian Empire um, by, by World War I. Uh, and yes, Alexander II was, the monarchy was always very popular. The Russian, Russian population always viewed the bureaucracy as the agent of the elite, uh, of, the, of the oligarchy. The monarchy is often hemmed in uh, by these people. Uh, the, 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 um, and they received their noble titles through their work in the bureaucracy, and that they were the ones who were stopping uh, royal legislation. This, every monarch said the same thing, that what we would love to do is always this timing by the people who are supposed to carry this out. By, and Platonov says this as well, by, by World War I, the nobility, uh, the, the, the bureaucracy in St. Petersburg, as well as local politicians, were almost all on the left of the political spectrum. But the noble class had moved to the left, had abandoned the, the church, and were, were either liberals or revolutionaries, um, uh, you had some lower-level nobles who supported the, the, the Black Hundreds. But I want to note that by the time of the Civil War in Russia, um, among the white officers, officers of the White Army, about 10% were landowners, were noble landowners. Uh, the elite had long since abandoned um, the monarchy and tradition and supported one form of liberalism uh, or another. So these things are all connected. Yes, and just um, finally, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I'm just going to read a couple of parts of your uh, bonds of your editorial piece, Liberal Democracy's Failure. Uh, This is relating to, in the United States in September 2015, a Gallup poll uh, said over 75% of Americans believe that corruption is widespread. Now we go down to the famed theorist of royalism under both Tsar Nicholas II and his father Alexander II, who we just referred to, was Konstantin Pobedonotstev. He served as Nicholas's tutor in reflections of a Russian statesman arguing against parliamentary governments. He speaks of those who believe monarchy is tyrannical. 
They imagine that by substituting for these systems a government by the will of the people, or representative government, society would be delivered from all the evils and violence which it endured. What is the result? The result is... The result is that mutato nominee all has remained essentially as before and men retaining the weaknesses and failings of their nature have transfused in the new institutions their former impulses and tendencies. As before they are ruled by personal will and in the interests of privileged persons but this personal will is no longer embodied in the person of the sovereign but in the person of the leader of a party. Uh, back to the editorial, his point is that views of government do not change human beings. If a society is corrupt, so will their government be. The only difference is that in a democracy, these corrupt insiders can claim that they are serving the people's will. Governments behave the same in power, regardless of how they receive their mandate. Concerning politics in a democracy, he writes, by their positions and by the parts which they have chosen, they are forced to be hypocrites and liars, they must cultivate, fraternise with, and be amiable to their opponents to gain their suffrages, they must lavish promises knowing that they cannot fulfil them, and they must pander to the basis tendencies and prejudices of the masses to acquire majorities for themselves. What honourable nature would accept such a role? Describe it in a novel, the reader would be repelled, but in elections the same reader gives his vote to the living artiste in the same role. Now we've literally got about 30 seconds left, so can you close out the show please, uh, Matthew? What Paul Pogonosti is saying throughout his career, is that power in the modern world is economic, not political. Uh, elections and voting, these are covering up for what power really is. No one votes for the CEO of Walmart, uh, the CEO of, of Viacom or NBC, where power really is. Politicians are there to take the blame when economic elites do the wrong thing, and it's the economic elites who control politicians and who really truly have the power. Everything else is just window dressing. That's what, that's what the, the anti-democratic, anti-republican uh, theorists uh, of the last 100 years, uh, 200 years, uh, have been saying. And that's exactly what Pope Honesty is saying there. Thank you so much for joining me today, Matthew. It was a great show. I'm pleased that we got to delve into each of your uh, three great articles there, and you were able to really explain those and relate them to today. So thank you so much for joining me on the show. Certainly, Andrew. And I want to thank everybody for listening. I encourage you to go to barnesreview.com and look at the uh, different material they've got on there and consider subscribing. And I will be back with you all soon. Bye for now. You have been listening to the Andrew Carrington Hitchcock Show on TBR Radio, brought to you by the Barnes Review. Andrew's book, The Synagogue of Satan, is now available on his website, andrewcarringtonhitchcock.com in an updated, expanded, and uncensored edition. <laughs>